we're kicking off, or we kicked off a series last week, and I'm looking forward into diving uh, into this next section here in chapter one. We will be continuing on in chapter one. Um, how many of you, um, if I were to ask you the question, now please don't answer out loud, I just want you to think of this. Um, if I were to ask you what your favorite pastime is, uh, would you have a response? Raise your hand if you, you would be able to answer that pretty quickly. Uh, my favorite pastime is, and then fill in the blank. Okay, many hands, great. So one of my favorite pastimes, uh, one of my favorite pastimes it was, and it still is, fishing. Uh, anyone in here love fishing? Great, all five of you. Um, so um, I, I, love, I love fishing. Um, really, actually, don't get me wrong, I love catching um, is what I like to do. Um, nobody really likes the fishing part, uh, the sitting and, and waiting for something to happen. You actually like fighting with the fish and reeling it in and then better yet preparing uh, the fish um, in a delicious way to, to eat it. Now, when I was a child, um, I learned to fish uh, from two very important men in my life, uh, one being my father. Uh, my father taught me different things about fishing, uh, but my dad's dad, uh, my grandpa Cahill, um, a man who dedicated the last several years of his life to being a traveling evangelist up until he was unable uh, physically uh, to do it. But my grandpa Cahill uh, was uh, the individual that fished so much that could tell you every single fish uh, that you saw in a picture or on the TV or you caught it and he could tell you the exact measurements that it had to be in order to keep it and to eat it and what was the best way to cook it like he knew all the things he was also the individual that taught me uh, very quickly that fishing is hard because you can't see what's going on under the water um he, he taught me several things in, in the summers of my childhood when I would go and stay with he and my grandmother when they lived here in Michigan. He taught me how to develop a feel for the fishing rod. He taught me how to cast the fishing rod. He taught me how to set the hook and when to pull harder and when to pull softer. He taught me all of these things uh, about fishing, things that I will never forget, things that I have now taught to our children. He, he taught me where to find the fish without using the updated gadgets that locate them for you. But lastly, one of the most important pieces of fishing that he taught me was how to use the right bait. How to use the right bait. How many of you know uh, a fisherman, or maybe you are uh, a fisherman, and you know how excited the fisherman gets when they talk to you about bait or their favorite lure? It, it's almost like, hey, what, what kind of bait are you using? And you're like, I'm using the little minnow with the pink head and the white body and the little silver spinner because it works every single time. Or then you talk to some fishermen and they're like, you have to use leeches, live leeches, because fish cannot control themselves around a leech. But then you talk to some people and they're like, we're never going to tell you our secrets because then everybody's going to do them and then they won't work. <laughs> but fishermen are all about changing lures. They're all about trying to find out what works. Why? Because they want to catch the fish. They want to catch the fish. The, the objective of fishing is to tempt the fish to believe that the piece of metal is going to taste better than a real minnow. That's what the objective is. Uh, the, the lure that you choose is going to deceive the fish it's going to make the fish believe that they're going to get a good meal so you as the human can get a good meal. You're tempting, you're tempting the fish to make a choice that eventually leads to their death. And I believe the word of God talks a lot about a very similar process. And that's the process of temptation. The process of temptation. And for the Christian... Understanding temptation, in my opinion, is key to walking through the Christian life. Uh, we started this new series last week, and we're walking through the book of James and focusing on growth, focusing on being rooted in the Word of God. And, and last week, we talked about trials. 
Part of the essential aspect of growing as a, as a Christian in this life is how we view and understand trials and how we respond to those trials with a Christ-centered response. So as we talked last week, and I want you to write this down, it's not going to hit the screen for you this time, God will meet you where you are, but he has no intention of leaving you there. God will meet you where you are, but he has no intention of leaving you there. In other words, after salvation, we have to grow and change. After salvation, growth and change. Now, I want to continue in that same direction, but this morning, I want to talk to us about growing in our response to temptation. We need to, we need to talk about what it's like to be a hungry fish this morning. And so with that in mind, if you have not turned there, I'm going to ask that you would turn to James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 13 this morning. Verse number 13. And James, James says this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. For his own will he, for his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures and that's where we're going to stop for today the word of god here and these six verses gives us three keys to overcoming temptation in this life and, and kind of pause break for a moment for those of you who may want uh, a greater understanding of temptation outside of what I could give us here today, I would encourage you to go to the church's website and listen to last Wednesday night's Bible study on Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we covered this very thought, why the believer still struggles with sinful behavior after they have been converted. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to Romans chapter 7 on the church website under the sermons section. So the word of God gives us three keys to understanding and overcoming temptation. The first one I want you to write down this morning is understanding the problem of temptation. Understanding the problem of temptation. The first thing I want us to focus on is to understand what temptation is so that we can seek to grow even in the midst of our temptation and grow in responding to it when it comes. We should, be, uh, we should be like the fish who can swim right on past the bait. And we need to do that in order to seek to avoid the temptation when it comes into our lives. But first we have to understand the difference between a temptation and a trial. A temptation and a trial. I want you guys to remember back to last week. We said that trials were good things and temptations were not good things. It's a bit challenging because if we were to read in the original Greek text here, this passage of scripture, the word for trial and temptation are the exact same word. Same exact word in the Greek. But in the context and in the usage, we know and see that they are vastly different. Sort of... Um, I hope this will help you understand. Sort of when I refer to my wife as honey um, in front of my children, I'll say, hey, honey. Uh, but then sitting down at the dinner table, I might ask one of my kids to pass the honey. I'm not asking them to pick my wife up and bring her over to me. <laughs> I'm asking for them to pass me the little sweet bottle of stuff that's delicious that comes from bees, right? Now, listen, they, they, are, both, they are both sweet, Honey, and, and, and my honey, are, they are both, they're sweet. There's an overlap of them, but they are vastly different. Just like trials and temptations, there is an overlap here in the text. Notice how trials are difficult, but they are good and for our growth. Look back with me to verse number two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking what? Nothing. Nothing. 
Now look at verse number 12. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now on the other side of that, temptations are difficult and they are not for our good nor our growth. Our growth is about responding to the temptation and not giving in to it. Temptations are not here in this life uh, to, to seek to help us to grow. They are here to seek to entice you to sin. They are here to seek to get you away from God, not to grow in trusting God. So a trial, a test is given to you by God to help you grow where a temptation is an event or a response to an event that's brought on by yourself, by others, or by Satan soliciting you to do evil. Did you guys catch that? A temptation is brought on by you or someone else or Satan to solicit you to do evil. You know, one of the ways that we see this very clearly is the temptation of Jesus Christ before his earthly ministry in the desert. He was tempted, but he did not sin. It was the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 that said, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. They say, But we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet he was without sin, is what the writer says. So Jesus was tempted by Satan, and what we're going to see is that there are external temptations and there are internal temptations. Internal. You know, you can tempt yourself to sin against God, and someone can tempt you, but God never tempts you to sin. Look back at verse number 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James wants to make it very crystal clear that we will be tempted and that God does not tempt us to find comfort and strength somewhere else besides himself. And so the challenge here for the believer is that you can often go through a trial and a temptation at the exact same time. I was just talking with the prayer team about this this morning. God can sovereignly give you something to refine your trust and and growth in him. And you can be tempted in the midst of that trial to give uh, or to find relief or satisfaction in something other than God. It happens all the time in the Christian life. Think about Adam and Eve. God put them in the garden to take care of it and to keep it with the command not to eat the forbidden fruit. So they would grow in trusting God as their source of what was good. But what happened? The devil tempts Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. What did he do? He got them to doubt the word of God. And so what did they do in their their response to that trial and temptation? Well, they gave in to their desire to be like God, and it brought about shame. It brought about suffering, and it brought death into this world. But what about a good example? What about Joseph from the book of Genesis? God sovereignly allowed for him to be thrown into a pit then allowed for him to be sold into slavery, then allowed for him to work as a slave in Potiphar's home. But what happened in the midst of the trial? Temptation came. Do you guys remember the story? Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to to perform sexual immorality with her in Potiphar's home. Adultery was what was placed before God or before Joseph. And what happened? He wanted to honor God. And so he fleed from the situation. He ran. In fact, the Bible tells us that he ran so quickly away from, from Potiphar's wife that his clothes were removed from him while he was running. She was trying to get him to stay. But what about Job? What about Job's example in the Bible? I mean, God brought to Satan's attention the character uh, of Job, and he permits Satan to test his character. And so Satan tempted Job to curse God, but Job worshipped him. Job did not charge God with any wrongdoing. Man, Job lost everything in his life except for his wife, but his wife turned on him too. His friends, all of his children died. 
He lost all of his livestock, all of his money, his home. But when he trusted God, when he worshiped God, what happened? Everything came back to him fivefold in the end. If you've never read the, the, the book of Job, I would, I would encourage you to go home and start reading the book of Job today. Don't turn on your TV. Don't watch, don't watch your favorite show. Don't put on a game. Don't play video games. After you have lunch with your family, sit down and start reading the book of Job. And don't stop at chapter 31. Okay? Don't stop when everything gets really bad. Finish it. Get all the way through the book and see what happens but what about Jesus? What about his example for us in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and, and to show that he was the Son of God. The devil tempted Jesus uh, to not depend on God and to test the Lord and to worship the devil. But Jesus desired so greatly to obey the Father and depend on the Father and show that he was the Son of God that he was able to resist the devil he was able to resist temptation by what? The truth of the word of God. If you go back into the Gospels and you read the account of Jesus being tempted, he is tempted in three different ways. He's tempted in three ways. In all three ways, he responds with Scripture back to Satan. All three times. He rehearsed truth out loud to the temptation. But the biggest takeaway, in my opinion, from Scripture, when you think of temptation, is who is responsible? Who is responsible? And so if you're a note taker, all you gold star students in here, I want you to please write down for me the responsibility of temptation. Just write it down on your piece of paper. The responsibility for temptation. It's not going to come onto the screen. But I want you to look back at verse number 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? Lusts or desires used interchangeably in this chapter. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James is trying to tell us that in this context here, even if there is external temptation, we are the ones responsible for how we respond to that temptation. Listen, each one of us is tempted and carried away by our own lusts. So we must understand that giving in to temptation is an issue that every single Christian struggles with in this life. And so we must take ownership of it. We must take ownership of it. Do you know Paul told the church at Corinth, and the verse is going to hit the screen for you in 1 Corinthians 10. It says that no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. None whatsoever. And God is faithful why is God faithful? Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, what does he do? But he provides a way of escape. He provides a way out so that you will be able to endure it. Why? Therefore, my brethren, flee from what? Flee from idolatry. Why do you think Paul used the terminology idolatry? Why didn't he say Flee from sexual immorality, flee from alcohol, flee from drugs, flee from gluttony, flee from, why didn't he just specify one thing? Well, because he wanted to encapsulate, flee from anything that makes you the God in your life. Flee from anything that you would chase after or seek after to replace God's position in your life. Flee from those things. But church, don't forget, temptation is common to man. Temptation is common to man. Every single one of us faces temptation. We will all struggle with temptation. Maybe not the exact same temptation, but we are all enticed to doubt the goodness of God. Every single one of us. We are all enticed to, to not trust God, but to trust ourselves and to seek comfort apart from him. But what does that look like? I mean, tangibly, practically in our lives, what does that look like? Well, 
It looks like someone at home leaving a mess that you have to come home and clean up after you just worked for 10 hours. And you're tempted to lash out at them and get some comfort letting them know exactly how you feel. It it looks like not getting attention and not getting appreciation. And so you seek to draw attention to yourself through acting like a fool or through immodesty or through an unwise relationship. It's like wanting comfort and ease, and so you don't ever address anything difficult, and the issues just continue to pile on and pile on, and everything gets worse. But church, God is faithful. He he is working and allowing you to have trials to grow, not tempting you to sin, but he does allow the sinful nature of man and the spiritual forces of the world and other people to tempt you, but he will always provide a way of escape for you and I to get out and away from that temptation, to to escape from that moment. Now, the Bible never ever says that we will escape from having no temptation at all. No temptation at all. Please, if, if you have any thought in your mind that because you became a Christian, you should have no temptation in this life, please just take that and throw it away. Throw it right in the garbage pit. You will have temptations in this life, but there will be a, a way uh, of escape. And you might be in here this morning, and you might think, well, if no one tempted me to sin, then I would be okay. Don't shift the blame. Don't shift the blame in here this morning. Don't, don't be the guy that said, if she didn't wear those revealing clothes, I would be fine. And don't be the girl that says, well, my brother in Christ shouldn't look at me because I have these revealing clothes on. Because both of you are wrong in that thinking. We used to tell our teenagers in our youth group, modest is hottest. Modest is hot. Cover that up. Ain't nobody want to see that. Boy or girl. And men and women... Because men are not the only ones in this world that struggle with lust problems. Let's just kind of throw that out there. While we're on the topic of it, listen, uh, I'm going to step away from my notes for a minute because we need to understand something, church. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should never be a stumbling block according to the word of God to somebody else. And so women, don't wear clothes that reveal parts of your body that nobody should see except for your husband. And men, learn to, to use some self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to stare at another lady. You shouldn't be staring at another lady. In fact, that's your sister. That is your sister in Jesus Christ. So stop looking at them like they're a piece of meat. That's so degrading to women. That's sad. But church, for those of you who do struggle with the lust, with lust problems, struggle with pornography, listen, I was there for years and years and years and years of my life. I was there. I understand what it's like. I understand how hard it is. I understand that sometimes you can't help what just walked in front of you. But there are a lot of things that we can control in this life. We can control what websites we visit. We can control what places we go. We can control our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit when someone who is beautiful and who was made to glorify God as an individual walks by us with revealing clothes. We can, we can use self-control. And, and ladies, if that's your husband in here this morning, don't dog your husband because he, he sins differently than you do. You should be the biggest supporter of wanting to see your husband change and grow. I was embarrassed to sit with my wife after having been married for several years and tell her I struggled with pornography. I was embarrassed. Our children weren't even old enough to remember the conversation. It was heart-wrenching to see the look on my wife's face, but my wife was the biggest champion to stand next to me. Yeah, I had men that invested into my life, Yeah, I got rid of a lot of things and cut a lot of things out of this life. But if I didn't have my wife standing right next to me saying, it's going to be okay, we're going to get through this and I forgive you, I'm not sure I would have made it. I'm not sure. 
I had a level of accountability with my spouse after not having any accountability with her whatsoever. And church, if that's you out here today, I'm telling you, you need to talk to your spouses. You need to get help if you're in, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you struggle with some addiction in your life, you need help. And the word of God says that we can overcome those temptations because he gives us a way of escape. We don't have to stay in that place. We don't have to live in a continual uh, recycle uh, of our sinfulness the way that it's always been. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been made new and the old things have passed away. The old things are gone. They were buried. They were dead with Jesus Christ on the cross. And you no longer have to walk in that way. You now have resurrection life inside of you, which means that you get to live differently. You don't have to choose sin. Nobody has to choose sin. We can choose life. We can choose life. Satan may be involved in our temptations. Other people may be giving you bad theology or poor counsel, but there is never ever a circumstance where a follower of Christ has the only solution to give in to the temptation against God. That's never the only solution. We are called to flee from idolatry. We are called to flee from finding refuge in false gods. We are called to flee at making a little G God of our own. And once we begin to take ownership and responsibility for our sinfulness, we can engage in understanding the temptation. And so we can grow and not just blame our sinful choices on everything else around us. And so the next, the next step is to understand uh, the process of temptation, to understand the process. Look back with me at verse number 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Our sin starts with our desires and our lusts. And in order for us to grow in this life, it is essential for us to understand our desires and how our actions flow out of our heart and out of our desires and out of our lusts. Do you know when we understand the source, when we, when we, when we understand the source of that temptation, then taking responsibility means when I sin, it started with me wanting something. I'm going to say that again, church. Taking responsibility means that when I sin, when you sin, it started with me or you wanting something. You want something. And now that desire in you, I need you to understand this, church, because a lot of people say, well, what about this and what about this? I, I need you to know that God has filled each and every one of us with desires. And those desires with inside of us, in and of themselves, are not intrinsically bad. They're not intrinsically evil. God blessed us with a desire for food. God blessed us with a desire for purpose and for work and for relationships and community and intimacy and all of those desires in and of themselves are good. But just like everything else that God blesses, it blesses us with and entrusts us with, we often twist and pervert and misuse those good gifts. Would you agree with me? We often twist them to fit our sinful purposes. You may have a desire for food. I mean, how many of you like to eat? I mean, just be honest, honesty in church. If you didn't raise your hand, like, what? You don't like to eat? You and I may have a desire for food, but it can easily turn into gluttony. Easily. You and I may have a desire for closeness and intimacy, and it can turn into sex outside of marriage or adultery very quickly. You could desire a rest that turns into laziness and entitlement. Your desires are not bad, but when we want something so intensely, 
when we become so hungry for something that we're going to be tempted to seek satisfaction apart from God and we give in to that temptation, we've now sinned and offended a holy God. I want you to write something down for me. Put it in your Bible, put it on your notes, make it as large as you can. When I sin, I offend a holy God. When I sin, I offend a holy God. I want you to write it down. Don't ever forget it. When I sin, I offend a holy God. I really want that person to listen to me. And so I'm going to yell and scream so that they listen to me. I really want someone to do their job better, so I'm going to threaten and manipulate them. I really want people to see when I'm good at something, so I'm going to embellish and I'm going to lie. And those desires are all deceptive. If you go back and read Ephesians chapter 4, he talks, Paul talks about deceitful lusts. When you, when you see your desires become so intense in your life, when we think of nothing is as important as getting what I want, I've been deceived. I've been deceived. You know what happens when we're deceived? We are then carried away and captured by the importance of my own desire. That's what happens. Sinful desire, church, will always produce sinful acts. Sinful desire will always produce sinful acts. Now, when that lust, that, that desire has become so important, it's become so pregnant with value in your mind, you've let it grow to the point where you've nurtured its importance in your mind, it then produces something. It gives birth, it gives birth to sin. Look at verse number 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what, church? Death. It brings forth death. You've let that desire grow so big, you then sin. You've turned away from God. You've disobeyed his commands. You've missed the mark of what your purpose is as one of his image bearers. You, you, you've missed the mark of your purpose as one of his ambassadors, as one of his followers. And you've seek, you are now seeking to go your own way towards what you want and away from what he has for your life. You've, you've come to the place where you say, I want pleasure and intimacy so much that I'm going to open up that web browser. I'm going to open up that thing on my phone. I'm going to search for something, and I'm going to turn to pornography to give me what I've been nurturing in my mind. Church, guess what happens from there? You, you go, if you continue on that path, I'm just going to fill you in. I'm going, to, I'm going to let you know what happens. And, and this, this information does not come from any Christian organization. It comes from a secular psychological organization. I want to tell you what the statistics are. Because this is, this is damning to the sin, sin culture here uh, that we have in our country. Statistics show that nearly 80% of men and women who have struggled with pornography and do not get away from it will eventually turn from using images to real people. 82%. Do you know how high uh, the addiction to pornography is in this country? They, they say that children between the ages of 9 and 18 are already struggling with pornography usage on more than a week, once a week basis. That's nuts to me. That's crazy. Do you know that uh, our culture uh, breeds sexual immorality it breeds it the content that, that comes out on tv the movies that come out the music the music that that is out in our culture there's an event that happens just outside of las vegas that they literally sent tents up that you can go and just pay legally pay to sleep with as many people as you can in a set period of time. That's what's going on in our culture today. Yeah, that's, that's just here in America. We turn from using one thing to using and abusing something else that was given to us for the purpose of glorifying God. And we use it for my glory and my purpose, and my pleasure. 
And the Bible tells us that the end result is death. It's death. Just, just like the fish at the beginning of the sermon. I'm looking for the meal, but in the end, I end up becoming the meal. It's brought forth death. Our desires for good things, for, for joy and for peace and for safety and for community and for pleasure, all of those things overpromise, and they don't just under-deliver, they destroy. They destroy us. If your desires are allowed to grow in importance, church, if, if they grow more in importance than God, there's going to be death. And death is separation. It's separation from God. And when you love something so much, it pulls you away from everything else. You want intimacy and pleasure on your own terms, and so you've turned to adultery or pornography, and it destroys your relationships. You want those drugs or that alcohol so bad that it, it uses up the money that you could to support your family, your children. You want relationships so bad that you'll jump into any relationship as quickly as you can because someone talked to you when it wasn't even what God had planned for you. And then guess what happens? It tanks. Do you know that the divorce rate in the Christian circles is more than it is in the secular? That's a scary thought. More Christians are getting divorced than there are non-Christians getting divorced. And I have a lot that I could say about that. So many people in the Christian circles have come to a, a place where they want their kids to perform so well that they chastise them and they shame them and they drive them relentlessly and then the children don't want to spend time with them when they become teenagers and adults. Or, or you want your spouse to think so well of you that you've lied to make yourself look better for years and years and then your spouse finds out and the trust that you thought you had is completely shattered and gone. broken do you know the, the lure the lure part of the fishing the fishing rod always has a hook the hook is always disguised there's a worm on it there's something with bright colors on it it's something shiny but there's always a hook always and like a hook, sin will take you farther than you want to go, always. And you will be at an end that you don't ever want to be at, but it started because you wanted something. It started because you wanted something. Church, I need you to, to hear me out for just a moment. Sin is enjoyable for a season. Would you agree with me on that? Don't, don't sit in here and act pious, Sin is enjoyable. Sin is enjoyable for a season, but its end always brings death. Its end always brings death, and it's essential for us as a body of believers to understand the process of temptation and where it starts and how it grows and where it leads. James is telling us, don't be deceived, my brothers. Don't be deceived, so I'm going to take a pause break, and I'm going to challenge you real quick with two things that are not going to hit the screen. He says, do not be deceived, my brother, first and foremost. Who, who do you have in your life? Who do you have in your life that can say, hey, brother, hey, sister, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't watch that. Who? Who do you have, and who can you do that back to? Who do you have in this life? James was warning the other Christians, brothers, don't be deceived by your temptation. He was telling them. He was getting up close and personal with them. Church, why do you think I harp so much on discipleship? Why? Why do I harp on discipleship? Why do I harp on the investment of one person into the life of another? Well, because we need people in our lives that can say, I don't think you should do that. 
We need someone that is much wiser, much wiser than we are, that's telling us, don't watch that, don't listen to that, don't go. I think you need to, I, I think you need to take a step back from how you just talk to your wife or how you just talk to your husband. Hey, I think you need to reevaluate how you're parenting your kids in that way, your teenagers. Hey, I think maybe you need to reevaluate how you just talk to your boss. Who do you have in your life? And if you don't have someone, find someone. If you don't have someone, I will stand right down here after the service and I will find someone for you. And I don't mean that in, in some like overbearing, aggressive way. I'm telling you as your listen, I have at least four men in my life that I connect with on a weekly basis, whether through text or phone call or face-to-face -face or either through FaceTime or, or something on a weekly basis. Why? Why? Because guess what? I'm still a sinner. I still make mistakes. And I want someone to be able to look me in the eyes and say, Josh, not pastor, but I want someone to look me in the eyes and say, Josh, I'm concerned. Church, you're not meant to do this life alone. I said this a week or two ago. We're not meant to do this life alone. And if you feel like you're going to succeed being an island unto yourself, you're going to fall and fall very hard. Very hard and very fast. So find somebody. Find somebody. The other way I want to challenge you is to recognize the temptations in your life. Find them. What are the things that you really wanted this week? These last seven days. What have you really wanted what are the things that you've been wanting for a really long time? What are they? Are you aware of the temptations around you that offer to satisfy those desires that, that you've been cultivating and they lead to death? Are you aware of them? Because God's grace provides a much better way for us. The Bible does not say don't desire anything. The Bible tells us desire better things, desire better things, a better source that produces life and not death, a true lasting joy and pleasure and security and feasts that don't have hooks waiting to pull us in. And so church, we have to understand the problem of temptation and we have to understand the process of temptation. And last but not least, we need to understand the pathway to life. We have to understand the pathway to life. Look back with me at verse number 17 as we begin to land the plane. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. For his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. James lays out in these two verses the pathway that is opposite the best things that you can do in this life are to compare your temptation to what God says and what he provides. And I can tell you right now, what God says and what he provides is always way better. Always. Compare God's goodness and consistency to our own changing deceitful lusts and see which one is faithful. See which one is better. Note, church, that every good thing comes down from above. Every good thing from the Father of lights. We look to people. We look to earthly things to get what we want. But even those people and those aspects of creation that are good, they came from God. All of them. And so we have to start by looking up, church. We have to start by looking up. Seek to pursue a heart that desires the Heavenly Father. Good things come from above. Man, how much different would your life be if it was God-centered at all times? With God, there's no variation. There's no shifting shadows. God is not trying to do the bait and switch on us as Christians. God doesn't change. 
As one of his characters even tells us that God is immutable. He's an unchanging God. He, he does not change what he offers the believer. He doesn't change how he's going to deliver it. He, he's not going to entice you and then change who he is to get his own way. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same exact God. And in contrast, though, do you know what we want constantly changes? What we want constantly changing, what we believe will make us happy is constantly changing, but God can satisfy for an eternity, for an eternity, church, and he's not here to trick us. He's not here to use us and then lead us to death. I believe that's why some of the last words of Peter before his death we're in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Church, it's on the screen. It says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promise so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by what? Lust. You can escape. Notice, church, what is truly good. He has given us what we need for a God-centered life through a relationship with his son. And even more, he promises us wonderful promises as his children. And by his promises, we become partakers of his divine nature. His divine nature. And what that means is that we get to be with him and we get to become more like him. You know, God is, is giving us himself He's giving us his very presence. He's giving us his peace and joy and security. And there's nothing better that, that he could give us except for himself. You know, all the good things that we want only come from him. I'm reminded oftentimes of Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. And he says, you make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Pornography cannot provide you pleasure forevermore. Alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, relationships cannot provide you pleasure forevermore. Being able to buy anything that you want can't give you everlasting joy. Having every single person think so highly of you cannot give you everlasting peace. But what comes from God is full and it's forever. There is no shadow of shifting. There is no variation of what comes from him. And instead of getting sinfully angry at our spouse or our children or our coworkers for the things that they do, we can recognize the temptation to sin and it promises us comfort, but it's just going to bring about death in this life. And so you recognize that God is using that opportunity to draw you closer to himself. Why? So that we can be partakers of his divine nature. So that you can live a life that's marked by godliness, which leads to joy and, and peace and lasting comfort. You know, by, by God's will, church, he rescued you because of his will. He rescued you. And his, his character caused you to be reborn from the moment of salvation. He brought us forth from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved. We were adopted into his forever family. We were born again, born from above. And so the question is, does God's will and the word of God direct you better than your own will? 
Does God's word and God's will direct you better than what you think will make you happy? And I would hope and, and pray that that would be a resounding yes from the people in this building. Do you know there, there are people here right now that could attest that when they do things their way, everything falls apart. But then when they care more about the will of God, he guides them in, into places they never thought they could ever go. So if, if God's will and his word do those things in your life and you see that as good, then we should continue to seek his will, should we not, church? We could continue to seek his word to navigate our desires and our temptations in this world. Simply speaking, we, we should know that God knows what's best for us as his children. You know, what's worse for a fish than being hungry, being dead? The essential part of the Christian life is not just growing in our response to trials, but growing in our understanding and response to temptation. We must take responsibility. We must understand that process, and we must see the path of life. We must see uh, the desire of God for our lives. And that comes through a, a a relationship with him as, as, as perfect joy and peace come from him alone. And so church, let us trust God and avoid the deception that anything less than the Lord will satisfy you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for these words of, of warning, but words uh, that point us and guide us in the right direction. And so I ask, Lord, that we would take uh, what we have learned, that we would meditate upon these words, that we would apply it to our lives. And if we are in here, Lord, struggling, um, struggling in the area of, of repeated sinfulness, God, I pray that we would seek help, that we would find, uh, we would find someone that we uh, could do life with, someone that would speak truth to us and, and encourage us to, to move forward. Lord, I pray for, for life change in this place as we continue to seek uh, your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.